Today's scripture reading is Colossians 3, 9 through 14, which can be found on page 7 of your bulletin. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord God, thank you for your word and what you'd show us through it, the ways that you reveal yourself to us. Open our hearts to hear your word this morning. Amen. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. In this Easter season, we're talking about the implications of the resurrection for the Christian life uh, by taking a a careful look at this one chapter of the New Testament, uh, Colossians chapter 3. And we've seen uh, that the meaning of the resurrection for Christians is not just that one man died and came back to life, but that through his death and resurrection, Jesus inaugurates a whole new creation. Uh, His resurrection is a kind of preview of the renewal, healing, and life that God intends for the whole world. If you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, then you are a part of that great renewal project. A classic illustration of what this looks like comes from World War II. D-Day, June 6, 1944, was the day on which the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy in northern France in uh, what still remains today the the largest uh, invasion from sea in history. It involved 160,000 troops, 5,000 ships, 13,000 aircraft. And it was hard fighting because the beach was heavily fortified. But by the end of the day, the Allies had gained a foothold in continental Europe. After this point in the war, uh, they had to make a slow, hard slog uh, across Europe fighting the Nazi army. But the essential victory was won at Normandy. The, The tide had turned at that point. And in the same way, Christians believe that that Jesus' death and resurrection is the essential victory over sin and death. Uh, There is still a struggle. We still must fight, but we know the end of the story. Uh, The tide is turned. The the image that Paul uses in Colossians 3 is being clothed uh, with the new self, literally uh, the new human. Uh, This is why Uh, You shouldn't lie to one another, he says, participate in the old ways that are dying because you have stripped off the old self, the old human, uh, 
with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, the new human. Last week, we looked at what it means to take off uh, the old clothing, the old self. This week, we're looking at the the new clothing. What what does it teach us about the Christian life? There are three things that we need to grasp here. The, The confidence of a Christian, the character of a Christian, and the community of a Christian, and and why each of these is important. The confidence, the character, and the community. First, let's talk about the confidence of a Christian. Why does Paul use uh, the image of being clothed to describe a person's moral renewal? I mean, he, he could have just said, be compassionate, be kind, be humble. There's something more uh, that he is expressing when he says, be clothed in these things. And this has to do with the significance of clothing for expressing who we are, our our identity and and our role in the world. In our church tradition, uh, pastors don't often wear uh, distinctive clothing as in in some others. But I do wear a a clerical collar occasionally. I did more in New York. And, And one place that I found it especially helpful is at a hospital. As a pastor, you get a very different reception in the hospital if you're wearing a collar. Uh, in that setting, all the doctors, the nurses, the staff, they, they all have their own distinctive uniforms. And so sometimes I found it helpful if, if I do too. Everyone knows why I am there. Well, by, by using the metaphor of, of clothing here, Paul is identifying the uniform of a Christian, uh, their identity and their role. And he says it's these things, it's these virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love. These express the identity of a Christian in in the world. Everyone knows or should know why they're there when they see these things. These are what Christians should be known for. If you want to be a doctor, uh, you've got to go to school for a really long time uh, before you can wear a white coat in a hospital. If you want to be a police officer, you can't just put on a badge and a blue shirt and go out on the street unless you want to get in a lot of trouble. You've got to go to the academy and, and be trained. The Christian's uniform, though, is in this sense very different. Uh, from these things, which you can't wear until after a a long time of rigorous training and preparation. As we've been saying, Christianity is different from the way we normally think about religion. Usually people think uh, that the goal of religion is to become something that they're not. They say, I want to be a more spiritual person, so I'm going to start going to church or, or meditating or or practicing in some way. But Christianity is different. The beginning of the Christian life is being united to Jesus by faith so that everything that is true of him is true of you. Salvation is not something that you earn. It's a gift of grace. And in Christ, you can know that you are God's beloved child at the beginning of the Christian life. This is why verse 12 begins, as God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved. He's saying, here is the confidence with which you can clothe yourself with these virtues. These belong to you. You've been authorized to wear these things. You are already chosen, holy, and beloved. Now put on your uniform. This is the pattern of the Christian life. First, receiving God's love as an undeserved, unearned gift, and then reflecting that love out into the world. I read this beautiful quote uh, from the 18th century pastor and theologian, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, this week that I wanted to share with you. It's, it's printed on page 8 of your bulletin. If you, if you turn over, you'll find it there. And this is from a sermon uh, entitled, Heaven, A World of Love. And he's imagining all the people standing around God. And here's what he writes. This is uh, 18th century syntax, so... Let's take it slow. I think we can handle it. He says, All shall stand about the God of glory, the fountain of love, as it were, opening their bosoms to be filled with those effusions of love which are poured forth from thence. As the flowers on the earth in a pleasant spring day open their bosoms to the sun to be filled with his warmth and light, and to flourish in beauty and fragrancy by his rays. Every saint is as a flower in the garden of God, and holy love is the fragrancy and sweet odor which they all send forth and with which they fill that paradise. Do you see the picture here? It says the saints receive God's love like sunshine, that they're empowered to send love out into the world. So what Paul is saying is that this clothing is meant to be worn now in the midst of a still broken world that includes still our own weakness in so many ways. We are meant to be a preview of what is coming. Resurrection life. A fusions of love being poured forth from God. If this is true, we need to know what we're supposed to be wearing to this party. This is what's coming. How do we get ready? Well, let's take a close look at these virtues in verse 12 and in the character of a Christian that Paul describes here. Each of the, the traits uh, described here is distinctive. Compassion. Compassion is a deep sensitivity to the needs and the sorrows of others. Uh, When you're compassionate, you see things from others' point of view and and, and you suffer with them. Kindness is, is a readiness to help those in need. It's an attitude of generous giving towards others. If kindness is an attitude towards others, uh, humility is an attitude towards oneself. It's a willingness to to serve and and to give up one's rights for the sake of others. Meekness is close to humility, but the difference is this. Humility is the attitude of someone who has given up power. 
meekness is the attitude of someone who had no power to begin with. Uh, it's used of the poor and, and the disenfranchised in the Bible who are meek. And if, if, they're given up, if they've given up rudeness and arrogance towards those who have power over them. Finally, patience is literally long-suffering. It's not just about enduring suffering by yourself. It's about how you react to people uh, around you, especially when they've done you wrong. You're patient if you react without anger or resentment. Each of these character traits is used to describe uh, God or Christ elsewhere in the Bible. For example, in, in Exodus, God is described as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Uh, Jesus says uh, in Matthew, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We could go through each one, but the point is that the new self reflects the image of its creator. And before we act in these ways, we experience them in the way in which God treats us. Uh, you can clothe yourself with compassion because you've experienced compassion from God in Christ. You can be kind uh, because you know his kindness towards you. In Romans 13, uh, 14, Paul takes this a step further and, and, and captures this reality by saying, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes clear that Jesus is not only an example of these virtues, he shares them with us through union and communion with himself. It's as we clothe ourselves with Christ that we clothe ourselves with all that belongs to him. So Christian character is not just a matter of obeying a new set of rules or replacing bad habits with good ones. It's about shifting the center of your life from yourself to Christ. To grow in love, you have to die to your self-centeredness, to your ego, and to your pride. This is uh, what the New York Times uh, columnist David Brooks learned, and the story that he tells in his recent book that uh, includes his story of coming to faith. Uh, the book is entitled The Second Mountain. He tells about how he was struggling with the Christian message of salvation by grace because it didn't seem to leave room for his own goodness and his own moral achievements. He wanted God to meet him halfway. He'd do some good things for others, and then God would bless his efforts. And after he grasped that God's grace is not for good people, but for broken and, and undeserving people, for sinful people, he realized that his problem actually went a lot deeper than he realized. Here's how he describes it. He says, the name of my condition was pride. I was proud of who I had become. I had earned a certain identity and conception of myself by working hard and being pretty good at what I did. I found it easier to work all the time than to face the emptiness that was at the heart of my loneliness. Pride of self comes in many forms. Among them is the pride of power, the illusion that you can gain enough worldly power to make yourself secure. There's also intellectual pride, the pride suffered by those who try to organize life into one all-explaining ideology. Then there's moral pride, the ego's desire to escape moral insecurity by thinking it is better than other people. 
that it has earned its, its own salvation. In the grip of moral pride, we judge ourselves by a lax standard, which we surpass, and judge others by a strict standard and find them wanting. There is also religious pride. This is the pride that afflicts people who think religion involves following the moral codes and who think highly of themselves because they follow those codes. All pride is bloated and fragile uh, because the ego's attempts to establish security through power, money, status, intellect, and self-righteousness are never quite successful. It's only after you've given up your pride in whatever form it takes for you, that you can begin to change deeply uh, from the heart. This brings us to our last point, the community of a Christian. Uh, Because nothing is more challenging to our egos uh, than bringing them into relationship with other egos with the same tendencies towards pride and and self-righteousness. This is why Christian community is not just an extra of the Christian life. If you have the time or or the inclination, it's essential for growing in grace. Last week, we saw that the the social, racial, and cultural diversity in verse 11 of Colossians 3 helps us to shift the center of our life from ourselves to Christ. In verse 13, Paul makes clear that a community like this uh, does not come easily. He says, bear with one another, literally, uh, put up with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In other words, he's saying, you will have to bear with others. You will have to put up with others if you're going to be in the church. If anyone has a complaint means you will have a complaint against someone. And when you do, you must forgive. You must learn how to put on the new clothing that reflects the character of Christ. It's only through community that we can reach the goal of love, where we learn how to practice love together. It requires commitment, a willingness to work through hard issues and lots and lots of grace. Uh, In his book, uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Alan Kreider argues that the Christian church grew in its first centuries because pagans uh, found it attractive. What they found attractive, uh, he makes clear, was not uh, the Christians' worship services. After the Nero's uh, persecutions in, in the first century, the Christians closed their worship services to visitors. Uh, it was too dangerous. You needed to know who was going to be there. And yet, the church was growing remarkably. Though there was, there was no social capital that came with being a Christian, it was hard to be a Christian. And still the church grew. Why? Kreider argues that, that non-believers were drawn to the lives of the Christians. Their moral character, their their concern for the weak and the poor, their integrity, even in the face of persecution, their life together, their sacrificial love. He quotes from the second century church father Tertullian, uh, the Christians provide for all sorts, for boys and girls who lack property and parents, And then for slaves grown old and shipwrecked mariners, 
and for any who may be in mines, islands, or prisons. Uh, Kreider goes on, the, the Christian's economic behavior, Tertullian contends, is visible to their neighbors. Vide, the neighbors say, look. The Christian's meetings may be private, but their effects can be seen in people's lives. According to Tertullian, the neighbors are attracted to this and attribute it to the Christian's love for each other. He said, look at how they love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. The early Christians were able to live like this because they were centered not on themselves, but on Christ. They wanted to know him and and the power of his resurrection. When we're focused on ourselves, we're always worried about whether we are doing better than someone else or we, we separate ourselves from others in order to be with people who support our own ego, who are like us spiritually or, or culturally. But when Jesus Christ is at the center, we are free to love one another without fear and without pride. As someone once said, we become like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, uh, praying to the Father. And as he prayed, he he looked ahead to to the church down through history, and he he prayed this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He says, even as. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the ultimate invitation of the Christian life, friends. To enter the life of the triune God. To know the eternal love that has always existed between the Father and the Son. This is the love uh, that you have been given in Christ, the love that you're invited to share with others. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you call us your people, uh, chosen, holy, beloved people, and we pray that we might know more and more the depth of your love revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, Would you fill us with his spirit? Would you teach us? Uh, so that we might reflect uh, his image uh, in the world, so that we might love as he loves and serve as he serves and give as as he gives, uh, so that you might be glorified and that more and more others would be drawn uh, to worship you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.